chapter number 2 and we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 23 tonight as we finish out the chapter this afternoon, sorry. Uh, Esther chapter number 2 and verse number 21. The word of God reads this. In those days while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I pray, Lord, that Again, it would be open on to us afresh, nor even if we've read this uh, account uh, many times. I pray, Lord, that you would have us leave here encouraged by something that we hear or read from your word. We thank you, Lord, that you um, sovereignly superintended these events and stood over them. And we thank you, Lord, for all that you did then. For all that you did then preserved the messianic line that we sit here and have benefited from the one who ultimately hang upon the, the tree of Calvary's cross, that we might stand here as children of the living God. So we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for our salvation, so great that it is. But we thank you that when it's your people, you're always involved. So we thank you, Lord, for Israel. We've seen your hand upon them throughout the ages, despite of their rebellion and rejection. And as was shared even this morning, we look to that day when they will look upon you, the one whom they've pierced, and they'll weep and mourn as they accept you as their Messiah and their Saviour. We thank you, Lord, that as your church, that we have acknowledged you as our Lord and Saviour. And we thank you again for all that you've done for us. And Lord, as we just get into your word, I pray that you would use me, help me, Lord, in to be able to share what needs to be shared. Lord, I don't want anything said that shouldn't be said, but Lord, I I pray that you would have your will in your way. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to talk to you about a man, well, a king, really, called Umberto. What a a tremendous name that is, Umberto I. He's an Italian king. Let me tell you a little little story about Umberto. This is is fact-checked, true, happened, that he was going to to dinner, out to a restaurant in, in Italy, He's accompanied by one of his his generals. Obviously, he's not going to go alone. He sits down in the restaurant, and the owner of the restaurant comes to serve him. And it's amazing to the general and to the king that the owner of the restaurant looks identical to King Umberto. Not only that, as they talk, they find out that the restaurant owner is also called Umberto. They start to converse a little bit more and they find out that both men were born in the same day in the same year. Both men had been born in the same town. Both men married a woman by the name of Margarita, not a pizza. (laughs) It's very Italian. The restaurant owner opened his restaurant on the same day that the king was coronated king of Italy. The very next day, The very next day, the restaurant owner is shot dead in a mysterious incident. Later that same day, King Umberto 
is assassinated and killed. These two men come together in these unbelievable series of coincidences. Same name, look the same, born same place, same town, both married women with the same name, the restaurant owner opened his restaurant on the day the king was coronated. They both die in the same day, day in the same way. And people, you know, look at this. And again, this is fact-checked. This is not just made up for the, the sake of this illustration. You can go and look at it yourself. And people see these kind of amazing coincidences all, all the time, don't they? You know, this, what are the chances of this? What are the chances of that? That this happened and all of these things come in line uh, between these two people. And what I want to say is that you may see these things in the Word, but when you get into the Word of God and you see these things, and we're going to see this tonight, that Mordecai is in the right time and the right place, that it's not simply a coincidence, it's not simply a, a collision of random events, but it is in fact the sovereign hand of a sovereign God sovereignly dealing with his people. That there are no coincidences when God is at the helm. It's not just luck, it's not just chance, it's not just a random series of events that ultimately help to go on to to preserve God's people and preserve that messianic line. No, no, far from that. It's not random, it's not just a case of right place, right time. It's a case of God sovereignly moving in these scenes. And we're going to see this. As we get further into this book, and I said to you at the start, didn't I? I said to you when we get into the introduction, that you'll not see the name of God uh, mentioned here. But the hand of God is everywhere. And again, I've said to you that he's an expert of bringing good out of bad. And the events that we've just read, even in these little verses of 21 to 23, incidental though they may be in the chapter, because we want to get into the big narrative, the big plays that are happening, but we shouldn't miss the small details, because God doesn't miss the small details. We often do. We often go for the big stuff, the big picture stuff, but God is in the little things. And these verses... Little incidental verses are so pivotal in what God's going to do as the story of Esther unfolds. So we find here Mordecai, from the world's eyes, we're going to see he's in the right uh, place at the right time, or the right time in the right place, whatever way you want to phrase that. So let's get into the text. We'll have a look through it. First uh, 21 to start off with there we're going to see that there's a promotion delivered it says there at the start of verse 21 in those days while Mordecai sat in the king's gate so here we find Mordecai and he's got a new position he sits in the king's gate to be seated it means to have some authority you know when a politician is, is, is uh, lost his seat is not what we say lost his authority Mordecai is sat in the king's gate. This means he is a judge of some description and has risen to a position of prominence within uh, the king's uh, court. And the gate, you know, ancient cities walled. And of course, when you have a walled city, ancient cities, you generally have one main thoroughfare, one main gateway where the traffic comes in. And what happened in, in, in uh, ancient times is this built up that the, the gate of the city became the kind of hub of everything, certainly the hub of the judicial courts. You can read about this um, with Abner and Joab and why it's important why he was outside the gate whenever he, he was uh, stabbed. 
when Joab got his revenge on Abner. But these gates, um, again, they're positions of, of, of judicial authority. This is where stuff happens. And Mordecai is now sitting in the king's gate. Now, let's unpack this a little bit and think about this. How do we think he's got there? Because to get there, he's had to rise up. What's happened in, in the last chapters that we've read, and some time has passed between what's happened in the beginning of chapter 2 and what, what happens here, is that Esther is now queen. queen. And then what happens? We find Mordecai has risen to a little position of power. It wouldn't be too much sanctified imagination to say or suggest that Esther has had some influence in Mordecai rising to position. Now, Esther's loyal to Mordecai, verse 20, she'd not yet shown her kindred nor her people as Mordecai charged her. And again, Mordecai being in the gate gets him closer to Esther to keep an eye on her or a watch on her. So, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of humanity seen throughout the book of Esther. And sometimes it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I, I absolutely believe that Esther has had some influence. So, so she can't go all the way and say everything that she needs to say, probably. And we looked at the ethics of that. But Mordecai has, has risen to this position and uh, got himself to the, the gate, the king's gate. So he's in this position. And again, you know, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that Esther has uh, been involved in this. And Esther's remained loyal. She's remained loyal to Mordecai. Mordecai's the one that's told her, do not tell them who you are. And, he's, and she's done it. She's been loyal. You know, Mordecai's raised her as a father. And she's been loyal to him. And loyalty is a, is a commodity that is in short supply in today's world. And certainly back then it was the same thing. You know, you get into the political realm, and honest to goodness, you know, loyal today, gone tomorrow. You see it all the time. Just recently, if you, I'm sure if you've been watching the news and seeing all that's going on with the, um, the Spanish football guy and everything that's going on there. But I don't, know if, I don't know, I'm not commenting on any of that. All I'm saying is that the day after, or a couple of days after it happened, there was a big kind of, seminar or something I don't know some event and he, when he was on and he was saying I will not resign I don't know if you've seen this I will not resign and all these people are going yes we're with you day later no 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 that was terrible what he done down down with him no loyalty no loyalty and for the pastor and I speak for pastors um, I have no doubt if you were to interview a line of 10 pastors, what they would appreciate more than uh, many other qualities within their people and their congregation is loyalty. Is loyalty. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that means you follow, follow the leader blindly off a cliff. That's not loyalty. That's stupidity. But loyalty is whenever somebody's talking about the pastor or backbiting the pastor or whatever it may be. 
that you're not standing for that. You're saying, no, that, I'm, not, I'm not entering into this. Go and speak to the pastor yourself. Be biblical about it. <laughs> the Bible? No! We don't use Bibles outside of Sundays. No. But there's a biblical mandate for, for these things. It's clear. But we live in a world where people aren't loyal. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow. Your greatest friends become your greatest foes within minutes. But Esther was loyal. She held her peace. She kept her word. And no doubt, we talked about this again last time, is that how many times, you know, you forget time transpires between verses. How many times did she have to lie? How many times was she in a position where people were starting to ask awkward questions? Who knows? All I know is she kept her loyalty to Mordecai. And that's admirable. So here we find Mordecai, he's had his promotion. And uh, secondly, there's a plot that's discovered. So if we, well, we pick up in verse 21. It says, so Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door, uh, were wroth and sought to lay hands on King Azarus. So there's a plot to kill the king. Now, this is not unusual in these circles. You know, who would want to be king? Heavy, heavy, where's the crown? You know, it's a world of paranoia. I was thinking about this as I was preparing and putting this together. I was thinking about, can you imagine a day in the life of Vladimir Putin right now? Like, honestly. Not, I'm not excusing anything he's done, but just put yourself a day in the life of him. Just walk about freely? No. Somebody gives you something to eat? <laughs> I don't know if it's poison. He has to separate himself, live in a world of fear and paranoia. So it's not unusual for these kings, because usually, especially when you get back to these kings, you'll find, and we've seen with this king, particularly Xerxes, that his behavior hasn't been great. So there's a plot to to kill the king. Who knows exactly what it was? Maybe, possibly, they weren't happy with the war that they had to embark on. Remember I told you? This, this failed invasion against Greece. You know, and when, whenever the people are pulled into that and the finances of the nation are pumped into that, you get people that are aggrieved, and sometimes rightly so. You know, we look at our own nation and the things that we've done, gone into Iraq and all that sort of stuff. People are grieved about that sort of stuff. Maybe that's what's happened. Maybe there was an, a tax that was uh, levied. Why? Because all the money had been spent on the war machine. Who knows? Whatever it is, we don't know what they, uh, why they plotted, but we do know what they plotted. And the plot was simply this, to lay hand on the king. And that language means simply they wanted to assassinate him. They want to take him out. So Mordecai, verse 22, again, Right time, right place, or sovereign God? Verse 22, the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it on to Esther. So Mordecai, in his position now, is able to be privy. We don't know how, but it's got back to him that he hears about this plot. And again, as I've said... God is working. God is working all the way through here. A sovereign God is working. But at the same time, I want you to see that there is a man there with a choice. 
What's his choice? Does he tell? Or does he not? Does he lift himself above the parapet and put his hand up and say, do you know what, there's something going on here, King, you need to know about it. Put himself in the target lines of the plotters. Or maybe he says, this king's no good. Who knows? What I do know is he's got a choice to make. You know, Xerxes, Azurus is not a godly man, he's not a good man, he's not a nice guy, he's done some disgraceful things. Um, you know, it wouldn't be a shame to see him wiped off the face of the, the map. Mordecai has a choice. And God was moving, but man has a choice. And, you know, I, I absolutely believe this more and more and more as I get on, is that we are just as people so extremist in our views. You know, one, one hand is that, that, that it's all man. And this is Armenianism, really. But that robs God of his glory. Then you get the other side, which is the extreme Calvinist side, that, that it's all determined by God, that we're all just pieces on a chessboard, which robs man of his responsibility. These are extremes. You know, here's the thing. I look at the Bible and I see a God that is sovereign, but I also see men that have to make a choice, but even in the midst of their choice, they cannot change the sovereign will of God. How does that work out? I have no idea. Here's what I do know. This is what I believe. God is sovereign. But I absolutely believe in no form of God's sovereignty that removes man's responsibility. That God is moving here and his purposes are being advanced and exactly what God wants to happen is happening. But at the same time, in that, in this little microcosm, there's a man, Mordecai, and he has to make a choice. To do the right thing or to stay quiet and do nothing. Same principle with Pilate when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate chose the easy way not to stand up and do the right thing. Mordecai does the right thing. He tells Esther. Whatever difficulties he might face off the back of this, he does the right thing. Murder is never right. So he tells Esther. And you know, history tells us countless examples of godly people just doing the right thing in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances. Oftentimes we look at their lives and think, you know what, I don't don't know if I'd have made that decision. I don't know if I'd have been that forgiven. I don't know if I'd have been that patient. But there's no excuse for not doing the right thing. We're always called to do the right thing. Let's, Let's have a look at Joseph. We know this example, but go to Genesis 37. Joseph is that example. Genesis 37, verse 23. Joseph sold into slavery by those nearest and dearest to him. Eventually sent to prison. Many years later, his family fleeing the famine come to Egypt in dire need of food. How does Joseph respond? Simply with grace, compassion, forgiveness. Verse 23, Genesis 37. 
And it came to pass when Joseph was, came unto his brethren, they stripped Joseph out of his coat and his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. This is a travesty. There's nothing right about this. Joseph is the victim. Verse 28. There passed by Midianites, merchant men. They drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit, sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. Then turn to chapter 45. So there's the story. Joseph's wronged. He's absolutely, in, in the world's eyes, within his rights to um, you know, absolutely have no compassion upon his family. No compassion upon those that have wronged him. But notice what Joseph does. He does the right thing. Verse 5 of Genesis 45. Or verse 4, sorry. And Joseph said to his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Look at verse 15. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. After that, his brethren talked with him. What a response. What a godly response. You know, Joseph is a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful picture. The similarities are there. He's a type. And what do I mean by that? And he pictures the one who was to come and, and be compassionate in perfectness. Joseph was beloved of his father. So was Jesus. Joseph was sent unto his brethren in the account. So was Jesus. His brethren refused to receive him. Same as Jesus. Went on to the lost house of Israel. Joseph was unjustly accused and condemned. So was Jesus. Joseph was buried in uh, prison. Lowered into the pit. Same as Jesus. When When he was at Pilate's house. Put into the pit. And go to Israel. You can pretty much guaranteed that you can go to that same pit and stand in it. Joseph buried in prison. Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph. Joseph was resurrected almost, comes out of nowhere, out of prison. Same as the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected. When um, Joseph came out of prison, he was exalted to a position of power and authority to sit with Pharaoh on his throne. When Jesus was resurrected, ultimately, where did he go? Sit at the right hand of the Father. Joseph on the throne became the dispenser of bread to starve in Egypt. That's what he did. He provided for them. Again, Jesus is what? Bread of life. Bread of life. After Joseph was exalted, he got married. Do you know who he got married to? It's a 50, I'll give you 50-50. Jew or Gentile? Gentile. Gentile. What happens when Jesus was raised from the dead? Who did he get married to? Or will be married to ultimately? He's supposed to. Gentile bride. The church. These pictures are everywhere. After Joseph got his bride, his brethren suffered famine. And what did they do? Came to him. 
After Jesus gets his bride, what happens? Tribulation. Ultimately, where do they go? They go on to him. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Joseph knew his brethren the first time, but they didn't know him. Same as Israel. Didn't know him. Joseph made himself known the second time unto his brethren. When they came the second time, same as the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns to Israel, will see him. After Joseph's revelation of himself to his brethren, they go forth proclaiming he's alive and the saviour of the world. Same with Israel. It's beautiful, beautiful pictures. Joseph then establishes his brethren and their families in the land of Goshen. What happens when Jesus returns? Israel sees him. His brethren realize who he is. He establishes them in the land. That's the millennial kingdom. Joseph, in all his compassion and his mercy, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's full of compassion and full of mercy. So if that's Jesus and how he behaves, that's how we're to behave. If Jesus always did the right thing, no matter the cost, Joseph did the right thing, no matter the cost. We're to do the right thing, no matter the cost. So Mordecai, he tells Esther, he goes and he does the right thing, and then Esther is going to go and tell the uh, king all about it. Esther, chapter number 2, verse 22. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when the inquisition was made of the matter, there's an investigation that goes on. It was found out, therefore they were both hanged on a tree. And, you know, these gallow type things, not like... You know, the Westerns swinging from the ropes, but literally, probably just impaled on a stake. They're gone, they're done, they're dusted. Again, the type of king that Xerxes was, these kings held their power largely by fear. And anybody that rebelled against that authority were punished severely and displayed for all to see. Crucifixion, the same thing, you know, one of the reserved for the lowest of criminals. Most horrific death, but it was done on a public highway so that all could see the cost of meddling with the king. So the plot's discovered, and Esther tells, but I want you to see there just quickly in verse 23 that the protagonist is discarded. What does Mordecai get for? bringing this news and Esther has relayed it to the king in Mordecai's name so she said this is where it's come from she's given credit where credit's due Uh, verse 23 the inquisition it was found out therefore they were both hanged on a tree and it was written in the book of the chronicles before the king all that Mordecai got was simply that the event was recorded in some journal and thrown in a dusty corner. But Mordecai has, has, has literally stepped in and saved the king's life. He's foiled an assassination attempt. Surely he was deserving of something, a medal, a day of celebration, a further promotion, another banquet. We know the king is happy at throwing banquets why not one for Mordecai nothing absolutely nothing doesn't receive recognition doesn't receive reward simply written down in a book and cast away like it was nothing 
you know, I was reading that and I always try and um, get into the mind of the character because they're real people. I think we forget that and I, I say this a lot, but, you know, take, when, you're, when you're looking at especially this type of narrative, build the scene. Think about the people. Think about how you would feel if that was you. That you put your neck out for the king. Because who knows if this plot had further plotters. Who knows how deep it went within the seat of government. And Mordecai does the right thing. He puts his name out there. And nothing. Maybe he's a little upset. A little cheesed off. Maybe, Maybe I shouldn't have bothered. It's a natural kind of humanistic reaction. Why would Mordecai not think like that? I think it's too far of a stress to say that maybe he's not thinking like that. And, you know, but that's what happens in life. Sometimes we don't get the credit we deserve. Sometimes the things we do go unnoticed by other people. Sometimes we will do things in the church we will serve and we will clean, we will do all the little things that help this church function and grow, and nobody will notice. Nobody will care. Maybe it will get recorded. Example, T. Ruda. Your name will be on a list. Maybe the pastor doesn't say often enough, thank you for doing the tea. Thank you for doing the tea, by the way. Maybe the little things that you do during the week, Go unnoticed by other people. It happens in life. And, and from an earthly perspective, human beings at times don't see what others do. They're too concerned about themselves. And Mordecai gets no recognition for what he's done. But I want you to know that God always sees. Always sees. Let's go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. We were there this morning. We'll go back again tonight. I want you to mark this down and mark it down good. God is always watching and God never misses a thing. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works. That's what the Lord says to the church. I know thy works. Look at verse 8. Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works. Verse 18. And unto the children of the church of Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who has eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works. Verse 1, chapter 3. Unto the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works. Verse 7, chapter 3. Unto the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I 
know thy works. God knows. And that's all that truly matters. We're due to do the right thing. Maybe others might not see it. But God does. And he won't forget it. No reward for Mordecai. None around him recognized. But God is using this. And he has seen to it that these events are going to be sovereignly recorded. Yeah, the recognition might not come now. But there's coming a date down the line where this is all going to piece together. And we'll see what God is doing with it. And God's timing is always perfect. And I believe that he sees that no good deed is ever wasted. We may not see the fruit in the time. But when we do the right thing in the right way, God will always use that in his time and in his sovereign purposes. I fully believe that. So the plot that Mordecai successfully exposed is nothing as to what's coming next. Four years later, another plot would be discovered, planned and perpetrated by Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And this is the next character we're going to see as we move in along in Esther. But for now, what do we find in this account of Scripture tonight? Is it just a case of right time, right place? To the believer, to the one that knows the Lord, the child of God, we should see much, much more here than simple right time, right place. We should see the clear hand of God at work. As God looks after his people. I wonder, as you traverse this life and all its ups and downs and bumps and billows and storms, I wonder if you're looking out for God's hand in that. I mean, actively looking out for God's hand. Because you may not hear his name. You may not see his name. But if you're his... His hand is upon you and it's with you. But are you looking for it? Even in the littlest of things. Because the God that is moving here in Mordecai's life and Esther's life that is around all these little events is the same God that is moving in our lives today. It's the same God that has, has allowed you to come here, that has navigated you here, that has kept you safe as you came here. I wonder, did you think about that when you came in, that God's hand has kept me, protected me? Being here this evening is not an accident. I don't believe that it is. Me being here as pastor of this church, I don't believe that's an accident. I really don't. And I've told this to some of you, and I tell them my entire journey of coming here, the Lord's hand has been there. Sometimes I haven't seen it. Sometimes I've missed it at the time. But I can look back now and say, His hand was upon us. He took us to Spalding. 
You know, even even mine and Claire's testimony, it's just his hand has been there. When we went to Spalding, the, the Lord led us there. He gave us the verses. He both convicted us at the same time and the same place about going there. And we left knowing nobody down there. And the Lord provided, you know, time after time. You know, from the school that the kids get into, from the connections there with um, the headmaster of the school, who was an American, his father was a um, assemblies of God pastor, his grandfather was a Baptist pastor. So there was biblical principles within the school. Put our house up for sale whenever we decided we're going to serve the Lord. Went three days. All these little things that brought us all the way down there. Remember Claire was working in Walsall at the time and she was able to witness and, and talk about this. Just somebody, you know, as you do, you know, why, why are you moving? Whenever you, whenever you say you're moving to London or Manchester, people don't go, but why are you moving to London Manchester? Whenever you say you're moving to Spalding, people go, what are you doing? Whenever you say you're moving to Stoke, people say, what a place, beautiful. But, so the question's asked, and, and Claire's talking to her boss, who was a Mormon. And he's literally blown away. No experience like that. What's Claire doing? She's just talking about the hand of God in her life. I'm down in Spalding for six years. We train a man through the Bible college. We sacrifice a lot to support him so that he can train part-time in college, part-time practically. You know, we sacrifice as a church, not because... I thought I wanted to go anywhere, but because I believe you need to train people up. And as Pastor David did with the Bible College, I I believe that's a principle that we need to do. So that whenever the pastor does leave, go to glory, whatever it may be, we don't look around and go, well, what are we going to do next? We train this man up for ministry. At the same time, Pastor David has, has, you know, committed... To be here until the building was paid off. He's called to go to Points Pass once, refuses. They come back, can't remember exactly the time later. Second time, he said, No. No. Third time, he accepts. At that point, the time that he accepts, the man that we've trained for ministry. Has finished his ministry training. If David had accepted on the first call, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have left those people. If he'd accepted on the second call, I wouldn't have been here. Third call, you called, and I was able to come. What is that? It's God's hand. It's God's hand. But that's not just reserved for me in ministry. That's for each and every one of you. As you walk here as children of God, as image bearers, God's hand is moving in your life. It may be blessing. (laughs) It may be chastisement. I don't know what he's doing, but he's doing something. How do I know that? Because you're his child. But are you looking for it? 
Are you actively seeking God's presence in your life and determining what he wants for you and where he wants you to go? I believe God is absolutely moving just like he was all those years ago. I believe that I'm here for such a time. I believe that you're here for such a time because I believe it's God's time that I'm here and that you're here. Right time, right place. When it's God's people and God's will, it's not right time, right place. It's simply God's sovereign hand. I wonder this afternoon, would you really think about that? What is it that God's calling you to? What is it that God's doing in your life that you may not be seeing now? What is it that God wants for you or from you for such a time as this? For the time of Mordecai, he simply had to do the right thing. The right thing was reported. And even though he didn't get the recognition, we're ultimately going to see when we come back to this in a few weeks that God is sovereignly moving. Folks, do not miss the hand of God in your life because it's not just reserved for the people of the pages but it's for the people of the pews. God is here. God is moving. Open your eyes. Let's pray.